0: Well, good morning, y'all. I don't do this all the time. It's usually Jeff that is up here preaching God's word, but I can tell you that I am jealous of him because it is sanctifying to the soul to prepare a sermon for the church. Uh, When Jeff asked me to preach uh, on a Sunday coming up, I immediately said yes. Actually, no, I texted him a little bit later. Um, But what first came to my mind was yes and I know exactly what I want to preach I want to preach Romans 14 so that I can educate all you sinners out there who have strong opinions that's a joke if you know me you know that I have maybe a few opinions Uh, and you know I like to talk about those opinions Um, I want you to know that this text was very convicting to me I am who Paul's talking to in this text. And I need to hear it so that I will love what Christ loves and not just love my own opinions. So let's read God's word together. And then Lord willing, I will preach rightly from it. So turn in your Bibles, Romans chapter 14. We're only going to go through verse 12. The whole passage really ends at fifteen seven, but I'm not quick enough to get us there, so we'll read verse 12. <clears throat> As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. Every single word of it is true. Kids, you are dismissed to go to your classroom or stay, if you'd like, uh, with your parents and hear uh, the message this morning. So for those of you who are members at North Point Church, uh, if you've gone through the membership, you will remember, or you should remember, that we had a statement of faith that you studied and uh, came to understand these are the things that we believe here. These are the essential truths um, of the Bible. You'd remember that many of them had scripture verses underneath each statement to show where you could find these truths in the Bible. Many of the, these things are what the Bible calls in 1 Corinthians, matters of first importance. So it categorizes, I mean, even the Bible categorizes certain truths as matters of first importance. Now these things are like the full divinity of Christ or the nature and the function of God's word, the Bible, or the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and the resurrection of of the saints from the dead, and so on. And other things in our statement of faith, they're no less biblical, no less true, and while they're very, 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 very important, they're not in the same category as matters of first importance. The best example that I can think of is the category of baptism. Now, all Orthodox churches believe that baptism is commanded right and good, uh, but gospel-believing churches have differed on things like the mode and manner of baptism. So think, think, uh, do you you know, immerse, do you submerge the person, or do you just pour water on them? Do you baptize babies, or do you only baptize professing believers? Now, this is a really, 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 really important issue, and we do actually divide denominationally on issues like, like this one, like baptism. Um, but... We wouldn't say that our gospel-believing Presbyterian brothers aren't Christians. We wouldn't say that. Uh, we would just, you know, just because they, they sprinkle babies, we wouldn't say, oh, well, that's that's not a, a true church. We'd just say that they're wrong and that we're right. Now there's a third category of disagreement among Christians that is neither of first importance nor is it critical matters of the faith. Okay? Um, and that's pretty much what we're gonna be talking about today. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. It's not unimportant. Um, and quite honestly, these, this third category can be very difficult to navigate. This third category isn't contained in our statement of faith or our membership covenant. And you could call these issues in this third category matters of conscience um, or disputable matters. That's probably the term we're gonna use most often today Though we'll use conscience too. Or even, you could, and this kind of shows you the hierarchy, you could call them opinions. Some Bible translations use that. The nature of these issues is such that there is, and this is important, no direct command for or against them in Scripture. No direct. I underlined that, bolded it, and put it in capital letters. So instead, we have to draw conclusions. Perhaps having to arrive at them based on a long, drawn-out process of connecting various dots in Scripture. Um, there's, a, there's a pastor, elder, who I really like a lot. I follow him on Twitter. He has a term for these kind of things. They're called um, jagged line issues. And the point is that if you have to jump from here to here to here to here to here to here to here to, here to arrive at your biblically based, these are all biblically-based points that you're using to arrive at your conclusion, then there's more room for disagreement. The more hops in the logic, the more room for disagreement. That's what we're talking about. There are many things that Christians in good conscience, in sincerity, and in pursuit of bringing glory and honor to Christ, disagree about. As I pondered this week on the things that we disagree about, I began to compile a list, just in case you don't think there are a lot of them. Uh, if you're on Facebook, I put a list of about 200 of them. I think I could have come up with six or 700 pretty easily if I'd wanted to give the time to it. But I'm gonna give you 10 examples this morning just to kind of give you know put, put our minds in a state of understanding of what we're talking about. So here you go. Now, um, the mere fact that these are convictions means that these are sensitive issues. So can we all put aside, don't let me offend you. We're safe. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Put that aside for a moment. Don't be offended. Turn it off. Is it okay for Christians to watch mixed martial arts? How about NFL football? Is it okay for Christians to hunt for sport, Ryan? How about if they eat? Their prey afterwards. Is it only okay if they need the food? How should Christians—this gonna hurt—educate their children? Public school okay? Private school? Only homeschool? Jesus was homeschooled. It's a joke. I'm allowed. My kids are homeschool. I can make fun of homeschool. Is it okay for a Christian to work? This is gonna hurt. And an MLM, you know what an MLM is? Multi-level marketing company. How about a credit card company? How about Frito-Lay? Obesity? How about a progressive company like Starbucks who supports Planned Parenthood? For that matter, can we do business? Like actually shop there at a place like Target or Starbucks that has Sinful, progressive ideologies that they support? Yes, target. Is it okay for Christians to eat fast food? What if it's Christian fast food? (laughs) It's it's pretty amazing that you all know what I'm talking about when I say that. (laughs) Is it okay for men and women to swim together? That was actually the big one when when Jeff, Hannah, and I went to the same youth group. And that was a big deal in youth group. And, and one of the rules was, well, yeah, it's only okay if they wear a T-shirt over their swimsuit. Can a Christian serve in the military? How about as a police officer? Can they be elected officials in our government? Can a Christian read or watch Harry Potter? How about Disney? What if it's Christian Disney? Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? And finally, can a Christian vote for Donald J. Trump? How about Bernie Sanders? How about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Some of you don't know who that is. Is it okay for a Christian to just not vote or vote for a Christian politician that they know can't win? So these are very important, very real issues that Christians must face. And we're not going to answer those questions. That is not what this is about. Just framing the argument. We often disagree about these matters. I don't think it's possible for two fallen Christians to agree on everything. I've never met anybody who agrees with me on everything. Not even my wife, like often. Now the big idea here is not about the disagreements themselves. The big idea in Romans 14:1 through 12 is this. Christians love, or you could insert the word welcome, Christians love or welcome one another even when they disagree on disputable matters. Or to personalize it, members of North Point Church should be able to disagree on disputable matters while still maintaining the law of love with one another. Members of North Point Church should be able to disagree on disputable matters while maintaining the law of love for one another. There was some of that happening on Facebook last night, actually, I was involved. Okay, we're gonna fly through this next part because quite honestly, it's not the main part of the text but it's in there and we have to touch on it. We're gonna talk about who are the weak in faith. Okay, really fast, here we go. The weak in faith, they're most likely Jews. Who were struggling to understand. They were converts, but they were, they were Jewish by, by cultural background. They were struggling to understand the freedom that they now have in Christ to be freed from the ceremonial law of Moses. Okay, Jewish converts were probably in the minority in the church of Rome because it's in Rome, not in Palestine. And some of them probably had a difficult time giving up their rituals because they grew up with them. They were used to them. They were what they had to follow their whole life. Now, the weak, in, in verse one, Probably didn't consider themselves weak. That would be a weird thing for them to call themselves. In fact, they were probably designated that by the strong. Um, But Paul uses it, he goes with it, probably because it describes the condition of their conscience fairly well. Um, Here are eight things, very quickly, that I see in the text, as in other texts too, that talk about this, uh, that describe them. Okay? And these are the first three are pretty important. They are Christians, okay? They're weak in the faith, not without faith, okay? So they are addressed as brothers and sisters. Now, number two, they're theologically wrong. That's a characteristic of the weak in faith, okay? They're theologically wrong, and we'll get to, we'll get to why later. Paul, Paul says they are, okay? Number three, and this is the last really important one, their conscience is bound to things that the Bible does not directly bind them to. They came up with jagged line issues that, that they've bound their heart to in Scripture, Okay? And then there's a few others. Specifically, the idea here is probably that they haven't connected the dots. They're, you could say, immature um, to put their reasoning together correctly to follow Scripture and be theologically correct. Number five, the weakness isn't inconsistent with piety. Okay, it's not, they're not on the licentious side. They're on the legalistic side. We'll get to that later. Now, it's not, number six, not legalism. Paul lights up the legalists in Galatians chapter 4, and he does, the, he does not even come close to doing that here. So these are not legalists. Number seven, they're not like in Colossians 2. They're not Gnostics or practicing asceticism, okay? They're not adding to the gospel from outside things either. That's not them. And then number eight, good point here. There's a parallel passage, 1 Corinthians 8, and then it kind of stops and then picks back up in chapter 10. The uh, meat sacrifice to idols, same kind of folks, okay? Paul has the same kind of people in mind. Their consciences were pricked, were seared by meat sacrificed to idols. Now, quickly again, very quickly, what are the issues that the weak have in the text? Well, number one, food. Meat and vegetables is the first issue. It's not exactly like 1 Corinthians 8. It has nothing to do with sacrifice to idols, I don't think. Um, But it's still food. It has to do with it ceremonially unclean. They're in Rome, hard to find meat that's ceremonial clean. Um, Days, so food, days, these are probably the Jewish holidays, maybe fighting over what day the Sabbath should be celebrated on, do we do Saturday or Sunday, now that we gather as a church on Sunday. And then the last one is wine, probably the same issue with the meat. Probably just can't find ceremonially clean wine uh, readily available. Because remember, they're outcasts from the Jewish community um, because they're Christians now. So those three things, food, days, and wine. Now, who are the strong in faith? They're theologically correct. We know this because Paul calls them theologically correct in verse 14 that we're not going to get to. Their conscience, number two, is free from things that the Bible doesn't bind them to. Those are the two really important things. Theologically correct, consciences are free. They're probably Gentile believers, they probably don't have his, the innate problems that you know, Jewish believers would have. Um, and this is important, just like the weak in faith, we're not legalists, the strong in faith are not antinomian. This is not what Paul's dealing with here. He deals with that elsewhere, not here. Now, uh, an important thing to note about the strong, they're the ones who are being primarily, not alone, he is addressing the weak, he's giving admonitions to the weak but primarily Paul's addressing the strong. Okay, so we've established who are the weak, who are the strong, what the issues were that they were disagreeing about. It's not legalism, not antinomianism, not gospel issues. They are Christians. Now we'll move on to the primary point. That was background. How to love one another when we disagree. A really interesting, striking point um, Paul doesn't just tell them all, uh, okay, well, what's the deal? Here's clearly you're wrong and you're right, so you guys stop it and you guys keep doing it. He could have done that. In fact, I mean, we know that because in the text, he says, who's right? He says, yeah, the strong are right. You can eat the meat. But he doesn't do that. He's really concerned about their conscience. And we're going to find out. Why that is um, going forward in the text? Um, one is if you sin against your conscience, Paul's going to say that's that's real sin. The second issue is that there's there's another danger, not just sinning against your conscience. Um, he could have just told the strong, "You just need to give in, just do what the weak want." Like it's they sound more pious anyway. We should just do that. We should err on the side of piety, and so you should be bound to what they're bound to. Well, the problem there is that you could fall into what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 is outright heresy uh, and legalism, um, m- making people uh, not get married and, and the things of that, of, that, of that nature because of asceticism, things like that. All right. So moving to the text. First point. Principle number one. This is in verse one and two. The principle number one is welcome those who disagree with you. That's in verse one and two. Now, our first, this is a a positive command, and then it's immediately followed up by a negative qualifier. Welcome those who disagree with you, and then the qualifier, not to argue with them. we don't have time today to go into, uh, all the way to the end of this particular passage in the Disputable Matters, but we see in the last sentence of Paul's argument in 15.7 that he repeats this command to welcome your brother and sister. Okay, So that is the, the, what sandwiches this text together. And he tells you at the end that the reason why you're to welcome them is because God welcomed you. So keep that in your frame of reference. We're to welcome because God welcomed us, and it would be unbecoming of us not to. As I pointed out earlier, Paul is directly addressing those with strong consciences on disputable matters. So if you have a Christian brother or sister who is weaker, has a weaker conscience on an issue, you, the strong, should go out of your way to make them feel welcomed. You must not exclude them or make them feel like an outsider. They are your brother and your sister in Christ and they should feel that way. The Christians in your church with whom you disagree on disputable matters, they should feel welcome by you so long as it depends on you. This means that we need to be sensitive to how we make them feel concerning these types of matters. You need to like pay attention to that. If we're withholding love or friendship over a disputable matter such that people who don't agree with you don't fit in, then we need to work hard to fix that. Um, There's a political commentator that I follow, shocking, um, who has this phrase that he's famous for uh, coining. It says, facts don't care about your feelings. And I get it, like, I mean, I I kinda think it's funny. I, I get the point of that, but that is not okay in the body of Christ, it's not. You cannot approach disagreements with your brother and sisters with the attitude of, I'm right, And so, I don't care about your feelings. It's convicting to me. Um, No, we need to care about their feelings. And don't get me wrong, you're not ultimately accountable for how your brothers and sisters feel about your affections toward them. You're not ultimately accountable. We're ultimately accountable to God for our actions and our internal motivations. But our actions need to be motivated by a desire to love and welcome them in such a way that all things being equal, they feel it. Um, Every church could work on that one more. Every church, including ours. Um, So the negative qualifier. um, The negative qualifier not to argue. Um, Very quickly, do you ever watch political television shows where they bring somebody on who disagrees with them, the only reason they bring them on is so that they can argue with them, okay? Don't do that. Don't invite somebody over to talk about something strictly because you want to argue with them. You should invite them over because you love them. That has to be primary. Paul wrote this qualifier about how to not welcome the weak in faith, especially for those who enjoy arguing or debating or fixing what's wrong with people. The reason you welcome them can't be so you can argue with them until you've censored them into obedience to your opinion. There's a time and a place and a means by which we can sharpen each other. And it has to be according to God's word. And Lord willing, some theologically incorrect opinions will be changed in our church. But not prior to or instead of welcoming a brother or a sister because Christ is made them your brother and sister. They're not your project. They're God's project. So that's principle number one. Welcome those who disagree with you, but not to argue about disputable matters. Principle number two, verse three and four. Don't look down on the weak. Those who have freedom, that's the strong of conscience, must not look down in condescension on the weak. If you have a strong conscience on a particular disputable matter, what's your temptation going to be when you interact with those of a weak conscience? What are some of the things that you might be tempted to say or think about them? Does it sound like this? Those people don't understand the freedom we have in Christ. Do they even understand the gospel? I mean... They're clearly not mature like me. They're probably legalists. Have you ever thought that? Or maybe even said that to your wife about somebody else? I hope it stings your conscience. stings mine. Personally, I'm tempted to put people in a box concerning disputable matters. I'm tempted to think that they literally can't be free be free in Christ because their personality is such that they just like rules too much. That's what I'm tempted to think. That's wrong. We're new creations and our sinful flesh can be overcome by the power of Christ. <clears throat> Thinking and saying these things about brothers and sisters and it's an attitude of superiority and it's sinful. So this is God's word to you when you have a strong conscience stronger than some of your weaker brothers. Principle number two, those who have freedom of conscience must not look down on those who don't. Principle number three, don't be judgmental. It's different than principle two, separated here. Don't look down, don't judge. The reason it's different is because Paul has changed his audience. We shift our focus now to the other brother, the weaker brother. Those whose consciences uh, restricts them must not be judgmental towards those who have freedom. So if your conscience is weaker on a particular disputable matter, by the way, you won't consider yourself weak probably. You'll just consider yourself convicted. You're tempted to look at people who are exercising more freedom and think or say things that probably go like this. How can those people be Christians and still do that? Don't they know they're supposed to give up things like this for the sake of the gospel? Don't they know what they're doing to the testimony of Jesus? Have you ever thought something like that? Have you ever said it? I hope your conscience is stung as well. I think many of us often are guilty of both sides of this. not... Paul doesn't say that the weak are weak on everything and the strong are strong on everything. I've sinned in both these ways. So that's principle number three. If you're weak, if you're convicted on an issue, don't judge those who are free. Now, there's reasons for principle two and three that Paul gives that I'm going to talk about quickly. Paul gives two reasons for why it's such a serious sin to break these two principles one, don't despise or don't look down upon, two, don't judge. In verse 3, he tells you, God has welcomed them. Do you have the right to reject, look down on, despise someone who God has welcomed? Are you holier than God? God straight up said that they're, Paul, Paul, they're wrong. So, so, okay, when you're looking at your brother and you, and you just know, because that's the way I always am, like, I know I'm right. And you know they're wrong and it causes you to look down on them or judge them, do you realize God knows they're wrong too. And he welcomes them. If God himself allows his people to hold different opinions on disputable matters, do you think you should force everyone to agree with you? And the other reason is found in verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant, the servant of another? Who do you think you are? You're not the master of other believers. God is the master. And when you treat other people this way, you're acting like you're the master. That's dangerous. You're not the master. God is their master, and he is a far better, greater, all the superlatives than you. Regarding disputable matters, your responsibility as a Christian is to let God The master of all believers do his work while you welcome your brothers and sisters. That's your responsibility. God's a better master than we are. So those principles again. Number two, don't look down on the weaker brother and weaker brothers and sisters. Don't be judgmental toward the strong and the free. Okay, principle number four. This one's good. that he sticks it. So be fully convicted. So lest you think that we were like shooting down all convictions, Paul goes, no, you need to be fully convicted. And this is in, this is in verse five. Each believer must be fully convinced or convicted of their position in their own conscience. This command to be fully convinced, it actually brings a third party into the discussion. Now, in a church, you'll have those who are strong in conscience on disputable matters and those who are weak in conscience on disputable matters. They, both of them, the reason they're weak or strong is because they have considered the issue, they've been faced with it, and they've thought about it, and they've applied God's word to it, and they've landed on a conviction one way or the other. But there's another group that might exist. Those who don't care. This command, that you should be fully convinced, implies that you should care. Now to be clear, you can't possibly devote all the time and attention necessary to fully discern every potential disputed matter that comes around, but an attitude of disinterest over God's word and its implications to all of life, think 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or you drink, The most basic, everyday thing you possibly could do. There's one other, but it'd be vulgar. Whether you eat or you drink. That was a joke. uh, Do all to the glory of God. So believer, you need to care about God's word and how it applies to these kinds of issues. Clearly, you're limited. You're not even gonna know all of them. But to be disinterested is not okay. Now, more directly... That was a side. More directly, this command is for those who have considered a disputable matter. They thought about it. They applied God's words. Um, Paul is saying that it's right and good to be convicted. But while you must be fully convinced of your position in your own conscience, that doesn't mean that your conscience is necessarily right. It's wise to always be adjusting your conscience. And what should we adjust it by? Not just your own reason. We should adjust it by God's Word. Always reading and understanding better God's Word. That's the only way that you can tame a sinful conscience. Our consciences are fallen. They are not perfect. Um, let me come in to you. I meant to bring it, and I didn't. It left it on my desk. Andy Neseli, uh, he's a seminary prof and an elder up in uh, Minnesota. It's actually at Bethlehem Baptist Church where John Piper taught. Uh, And he wrote an excellent book. Ask me about it later. It's it's called Conscience. Um, What did I say? It's called Conscience. What is it? How to train it and loving those who differ. And that how to train it part, he devotes a giant chunk in that book to what he calls calibrating your conscience. Okay, Extremely helpful um, thought or idea about how we use God's word to calibrate our conscience. Um, so the main principle here Is that we need to have Bible birthed convictions I like to way that Bible birthed convictions Convictions that come from the Bible And they're good to have Convictions are not bad They're good to have Paul commends you for them Be convicted Don't go against your conscience Okay principle five And this is I think our last principle Yeah before we go into the reason why Principle five, I love this one. This one is a, uh, this, is a this is a pet principle of mine. Um, the guy who mentored me in college taught me this and it has stuck with me. Principle five, make generous assumptions. Make generous assumptions. And I get this from verse six through eight. When you come across someone whose convictions differ from yours, assume, it's not always wrong to assume when you're assuming this way assume that they are partaking or refraining, get that straight from the text, for the glory of God. Notice how generous Paul is here in the text. Let's read this just real quick. This is almost shocking. Um, He tells you right away their conviction in verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since, and you can know this, Because he gives thanks, that's how you know Or at least are to assume While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord And gives thanks to God as well For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself For if we live, we live to the Lord And if we die, we die to the Lord So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's Sound like Philippians? Like that's a theme of the Christian's life And Paul assumes it he says, if you're a Christian, this just goes without saying. We're supposed to live and die and everything that we do for the Lord. We're supposed to be motivated by that. So you can assume it until proven otherwise. You can approach them with that assumption. Wouldn't it be amazing to be in a church where the culture of that church regarding disputable matters was to give everyone the benefit of the doubt? Just assume that others are doing those convictions that they have for the glory of God? Just assume it. Wouldn't it be refreshing? Wouldn't it be healthy to do what Paul is saying here instead of putting the worst possible spin on everybody's motivations? They must be a legalist. He must be licentious. Instead, that brother's freer than I am. Praise God for him. Or man, I wish I had the strong convictions of that sister. That's, that's, that is amazing. Praise God. I messed up on this recently. And I did it on Facebook. It's one more reason why Jeff has on me to get off Facebook. Um, There was a brother that I was talking to, and uh, it was over, I mean, it was not an unimportant matter. It was over the death penalty, actually. And um, I shouldn't have. The the things I were saying weren't weren't wrong, but then I went somewhere I shouldn't have. I accused his motivations of being not wanting to submit to the Word of God. That is embarrassing to say. That's what I did. I said, could it be that you just don't want to do what God clearly tells you to do in Scripture? That's a disputable matter. It is wrong and sinful for me to assume those motivations. He didn't tell me that. It wasn't obvious by what he was saying. One reason why it's okay to assume the best of another person's conviction is because you don't even have to be theologically correct in order to glorify God. Can you believe that? Let me say that again. The one, one reason, and this was, this was one of those points in the text this week that I was stunned. One reason why it's okay to assume the best of another person's convictions is because you don't even have to be theologically correct. Think the weaker brother who's not theologically correct. Paul says he's glorifying God. That's just amazing. So you can have a weak conscience on an issue and do it in a way, and that's important, that honors God. This should always be in our minds when we see other brothers and sisters doing or saying something out of conviction that we disagree with. This should be sprinkled on every thought and every word of interaction. The main issue is not changing their view. The main issue is glorifying God, regardless of what their conscience is saying. That's what Paul is arguing in this passage. So this last principle here is, assume the best of your brother's and sister's motivation. Make generous assumptions. So that was verses 1 through 8. We looked at five commands in those verses that direct us, like they're kind of a how-to to interact with brothers and sisters when we disagree. And up to now, the principles from the passages that we've, we've seen have been very direct, positive, and negative commands, okay? Now Paul stops midway through. Remember, this whole passage goes through 15.7. We're kind of at the midway point here um, between that, that whole argument. And he, 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 so he, he starts it with welcome, he ends it with welcome, and in the middle here, he tells you why, okay? and and it's, it's glorious, but to recap our five points before we get to the reason why. Number one, welcome those who disagree. Number two, don't look down on the weak. Number three, don't judge the strong. Number four, be fully convinced or convicted in your conscience. Number five, make generous assumptions. And the reason why is in verses nine through 12. Let's read those together. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. Died on the cross, lived again, resurrected. Not not his life on earth. That he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. That's everybody. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? He's repeating. For we will stand, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. There's our reason why. Christ's merit, all of us will be judged. Christians, whether strong or weak in faith, have been bought and paid for. Verse 9 by the life and death of Jesus. By his blood, Christians are accepted as sons and daughters. Christians belong to the family of God, weak and strong. We all live under God's roof, in his house, eating of his spiritual food, in rooms that he made for us, full of everything we could possibly need. And all of that was bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. That's what we see in verse 9. In light of this, in light of that high, the highest cost, do you see how unbecoming it is for God's children to fight over disputable matters? To judge and despise each other? When I say fight, I don't mean sharpen, I don't mean talk about I mean despise and judge. Parents, consider for a moment when one of your older children... Where are my kids? There they are. Think about this, kids. Think about Ella. When one of your older children despises or pokes fun of one of their younger siblings, looks down on that younger sibling condescendingly, or younger siblings... When you get mad and think mean thoughts and are angry about the freedoms that your older brother or sister have been given by their parents. This isn't uncommon with our kids and in our families, and it's not uncommon in the church. But do you see how totally out of place it is? The younger sibling is younger They don't know any better yet. They haven't lived as long. They haven't connected the dots. The older sibling has freedoms in Christ that the parent has given. The parent is still the master. Remember that, kids. I'm still the master. The reason that this is out of place for siblings is the same reason that it's out of place for us. Just as siblings are not mom and dad, brothers and sisters, are not the Lord. We we, we try to make each other obey God, essentially. You can't make your brother or sister obey God. And you especially can't do it and shouldn't do it about disputable matters. We're not Christ. And, verse 12, we don't stand in judgment over the consciences of others concerning disputable matters. But, though we don't stand in judgment over those disputable matters, God does. Our section ends here with the assurance that we will be judged. Did you know that? Did you know that Christians will be judged? Specifically, we're told that our actions and our conduct will be judged by God. If you go to 2 Corinthians 5, it says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be judged for what He has done in the body. I mean, you can't get any clearer than that. And it's all over the New Testament. It's not just you know, here and in 2 Corinthians. We will be judged. And when we stand before God, we will not be held responsible for our brother and sister's convictions. Let me repeat that. When you stand before God and He's judging your actions, He's not going to ask you why you let your sister. Remember when I told you not to get offended? Okay, don't get offended. He's not going to ask you why you let your sister public school her kids. He's not going to ask you that. He will not ask you why you didn't stop your brother from drinking wine. He will not ask you why you didn't convince that couple to not use birth control. He won't hold you accountable for your brother holding to infralapsarianism. There's a few of us in here that find that amusing. He won't ask you about why you let your sister use essential oils. But he will ask you if you welcomed your brother or sister with whom you disagreed with over these disputable matters. And he will ask you if you were judgmental towards them. He will ask you if you look down on them. He will ask us why we persuaded our brothers and sisters to violate their consciences on disputable matters, the sin. He'll ask us those things at the judgment. And that would be terrifying if it weren't for the glorious fact that Jesus will be standing there right next to every Christian. And every act that falls short of the glory of God, Jesus will say, I have paid for that sin and that sin and that sin, every sin. I've paid for it already. Praise God. However, if you're not a Christian, if you've not repented of your sins and haven't confessed your inability to pay for the offenses that you've committed against a righteous and holy God, if you have not clung to the cross the cross of Jesus as your only hope, then you are still dead in your sins. And on that judgment day, it will not go well for you. In fact, it will be more terrifying than anything you could possibly imagine. You'll stand before the judgment seat of God with your life laid bare, and Jesus will be there. But his words will not be that he paid for those sins. Rather, his words will be, I never knew you. Depart from me. Friend, don't let one more moment go by before you repent of your sins and cling to Jesus. You want to stand before that judgment throne with Christ your defender. Not Christ who never knew you. Because you rejected him. There's nothing you can do to earn his affection. We sang that. We actually sang there's nothing we can do to earn his affection. We simply confess our inability to save ourselves. Confess our sins and that he is Lord of our life. And he will welcome you. Welcome you with open arms into his family. I don't have time for questions. I had some really good ones. Instead, we'll end with application. So how how should you think about these things? What should you ask yourself? Now to those who are in Christ, brothers and sisters, in light of being reconciled to God by the work of Christ completed on the cross, it may be helpful to ask yourself, if you need to be reconciled to a brother or a sister that you've wrongly judged or looked down on over a disputable matter. That's what went through my head. I only gave you, what, two examples of how I messed up on this and sinned? There were a lot more. Do you perhaps, additionally, do you, do you perhaps have opinions or personal convictions that you've held in higher regard? Maybe you haven't actually um, scarred somebody's conscience or argued with them in a poor way, but do you have opinions, have convictions that are more important to you than loving your brother and sister in Christ? It might be wise to examine those. Perhaps some of us need to consider specifically, um, and this shows up more in the First Corinthians text, if you flaunted your freedom. So in that 1 Corinthians text, they were literally going into houses of idol worship and eating there. That's pretty sensational. And they were doing it to flaunt their freedom. That can, Paul says that can destroy your brother and sister in Christ. You have freedoms that perhaps you've treated in a way that's flaunting them. Essentially just not caring about what we say, we need to care about the feelings of our brothers and sisters. Finally, I think all of us can ask God to incline us toward our brothers and sisters such that we are generous with our assumptions. All of us can can ask God for that. We can always be growing in grace to assume the best of others until absolutely proven otherwise. Looking for fruit in their lives. Assuming that their convictions are convictions because they love God just like you do, and they've just come to a different conclusion, even if it's wrong. And all of these things we ask of ourselves because Christians love one another. We love, we welcome one another, even when we disagree about disputable matters.